Highland Falls, El Paso, Clarksville, Watertown, and from other important military capitals around the globe. Eye on Defense brings the top military and defense issues into focus. Eye on Defense is proudly sponsored by Big Sarge Pre-Owned TA-50 Emporium and The Last Hope Jewelry and Pawn. And now, citizens of Earth, brace yourselves for the next episode of Eye on Defense. Defense, 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 defense. All right, we're back, everybody. What's going on? It's 11 February, evening 11 February, and this is episode 95. It's raining, been raining all day where I'm at. I was supposed to go out and do some sort of fitness today, but I couldn't do it because it rained all day, rained all night. I think the sun might come out tomorrow, and I'll make sure I go out and do something. And then there's more balloon stuff going on. I thought we were done with the balloon stories, but we're not. Uh, in fact, there was a balloon incident over Alaska. I think it was yesterday. Everybody was talking about it, and I was like, what, what? Balloons, what? That was another one. And then, apparently, there was one today. Today's Saturday. So, we'll start with the balloon stuff. And then, uh, we got two shoulder launch stories, which, you know, if you follow the podcast, we're all about shoulder launch stories. And we got two. So, let's try to catch everybody up with the balloon stuff. Uh, this is from 11 February, but it's referring to the balloon from 10 February. And it's from this website called Aviation Geek, I think. Uh, I did the first balloon story. Well, let me let me make the correction. We did a balloon story on episode 93 and then episode 94 when the United States shot down that balloon off South Carolina. That was our second balloon story. So the balloon, I think that I titled it uh, Chinese Balloon Killed in Action off... Uh, South Carolina coast. So I took that story from this, uh, the website called the aviation geek. I think and I thought they did a pretty good job. So when this other balloon was killed in action over Alaska yesterday, the aviation geek, uh, did a story on it. So I figured I'd just do, do their, their website also. So again, this is from, I think the same author a guy named Dario Leon, 11 February aviation geek website. The F, okay, F-22 Raptor scores its second aerial kill after shooting down high-altitude object over Alaska by means of another AIM 9X Sidewinder. So I don't think this second uh, aerial vehicle balloon, whatever you want to call it, I don't think they've identified what it is or who owns it, but, you know, let's connect the dots here. Probably somebody from, probably Chinese, I don't know. I'm not sure if they know they're not, they mean the United States is not saying. So let's get to it. Uh, at the uh, So 11 February, so at the order of President Joe Biden, U.S. Air Force F-22 from Joint Base Elmendorf-Richardson shot down a high-altitude object, in parentheses, near the coast of Alaska on 10 Feb 2023, which was yesterday. But unlike the Chinese surveillance balloon that was trend, uh, shot down, Last week, the origins of this new object, its purpose, and even precise description remain unclear. National Security Spokesman John F. Kirby said the object was about the size of a small car and was flying about 40,000 feet. He said because it posed a reasonable threat to the safety of civilian flight and 
that out of abundance of caution and recommendation of the Pentagon president, Joe Biden ordered the military to shoot down the object. And some description of it said it was described as a sin, sin, man, <laughs> cylindrical, I think that's the word, cylindrical and silverish gray, and seemed to be floating, a U.S. official said. Asked if it was balloon light, the official said, all I can say, it wasn't flying with any sort of propulsion. So if that is balloon light, well, we don't have enough at this point. In other words, nobody knows what the heck it is, I guess. Uh, John Kirby added, it came inside our territory waters. Those waters are right now frozen, but inside territory airspace and over territorial waters. Fighter aircraft uh, assigned to NORAD took down the object within the last hour. We don't know who owns the object, he said. Uh, Kirby said the object came to U.S. attention Thursday evening. It does not appear to have maneuverable capability. It was virtually at the whim of the wind. A pair of F-35s were first sent to identify the object on the night of February 9th. Uh, two more F-22s. So, wow, F-35s were sent up on the night of February 9th. And then two more F-22 Raptors were sent up February 10th to observe it. And on the orders of the president, one of the Raptors fired an AIM-9X missile to take down the object, which fell into frozen U.S. territory waters. This is from Pentagon Press Secretary Brigadier General Patrick Ryder. And then it kind of goes back to the balloon from uh, the last week. I think that was 4 February. So the Chinese surveillance balloon was also detected in Alaska, though on the opposite side of the massive state near the Aleutian Islands before flying over Canada. By the time the president gave the order to shoot it down, Pentagon officials have said it crossed from Canada into Idaho and Montana. And Biden, you know, left it. Left it to fly over the United States until it was shot down over South Carolina. Of course, we know about that. Uh, so here's some more stuff on the other balloon. This is the balloon from 10 Feb. Uh, in terms of recovery, they have an HC-130 and HH-60 and CH-47 participating in the recovery. Uh, General Ryder previously specifically mentioned that the Alaska National Guard, in the form of the 176th Wing, is being involved in the operation along with the FAA. The FBI and U.S. Northern Command Alaska has led the mission. So a little description of the 176th Wing is stationed at Joint Base Element North Richardson in Anchorage, Alaska. There are three squadrons, 210 Rescue, 211 Rescue, and 212 Rescue. They comprise, comprise the combat search and rescue recovery, personnel recovery, component of the wing. They're armed with HH-60G Payfock helicopters, h HC-130J Combat King, Specialized Hercules Transports, and Holly Qualified Pararescue Persons, CROs, and PJs. So, to keep you up, that's the 10 February shoot down off uh, Alaska. There was one 4 February, there's one 10 February, and there's one that just happened uh, today, 11 February. And there's a statement from uh, the Pentagon. It's dated 11 February. Statement on today's action by NORAD, North American Airspace Defense Command. Uh, and it's from Brigadier General Pat Ryder. And here's a statement. Following a call from President, uh, following a call between the Prime Minister of Canada and the President of the United States, President Joe Biden authorized U.S. fighter aircraft assigned to North American 
Aerospace Defense Command, also known as NORAD, to work with China to take down a high-altitude airborne object over northern Canada today. NORAD detected the object over Alaska late Friday evening. Two F-22 aircraft from Joint Base Elmendorf Richardson, Alaska, monitored the object over U.S. airspace with assistance of the Alaska National Guard refueling aircraft, tracked it closely, taking time to characterize the nature of the object. Monitoring continued today as the object crossed into Canadian airspace with Canadian CF-18 and CP-140 aircraft joining the formation to further assess the object. A U.S. F-22 shot down the object in Canadian territory using an AIM-9X missile following close coordination between United States and Canadian authorities, including a call today between Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin and Mr. Defense Anita Anand. As Canadian authorities con conduct recovery operations to help our countries learn more about the object, the FBI will, work, will be working closely with the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. So that's balloon or object number three. And I thought I had something pulled up. I do. This uh, CTV News, I guess it's a Canadian news channel. Headline is NORAD shoots down unidentified object over Yukon, PM Trudeau says. And this is from 11 February, 7.15 p.m. Real quick, uh, U.S. fighter jet working with NORAD shot down an unidentified object over Yukon on Saturday. And ACT Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said he ordered over the object violated Canadian airspace. And a, true, and a statement from Trudeau is Canadian and U.S. aircraft were scrambled and a U.S. F-22 successfully fired at the object. I spoke with Joe Biden this afternoon. Our President Biden, I'm sorry. Canadian forces will now recover and analyze the wreckage of the object. Thank you to NORAD for keeping watch over North America. Anything else I need to go into this? Probably not. I think that's it. So if you're keeping track, wait, there's a statement from there. There's, I guess there's Sec Defense, uh, Anita Anand. Today, a NORAD command aircraft shot down an unidentified object that violated Canadian airspace. Canadian U.S. aircraft were scrambled and the U.S. F-22 fired at the object. I discussed this with Secretary Defense Austin and reaffirmed that we'll always defend our sovereignty together. That's it. I think I had enough balloon stories. All right, what's next? Now, let me pause right there. Pull up the next story. Yeah, it's kind of hard for me to be excited about these balloon stories. Um, I assume they're Chinese. Nobody knows. Or everybody, if they know, they're not saying. And, you know, leave it to the United States and Canada. We'll figure it out eventually. It looks like we've got an SOP now that start shooting down these things. Um, again, I didn't have a problem with the way they handled the last one, you know, shooting it down once you got over South Carolina. I mean, anyway, I, I mean, I can't, it's hard for me to get excited about these balloon stories. I'm sorry, but it seems to be that it's all the news, so I figured that's why I'd covered it. So this next story is a pretty good one. It's from 10 February. It's from Defense News. It's a story about... Uh, the sixth generation fighter program between uh, U uh, UK, uh, Japan, and Italy. It's written by Tom Kington, 10 Feb uh, Defense News. Wallace urges Italy, Japan to stick together with just launch fighter project. As Britain, Italy, and Japan embark on an ambitious plan to build a new fighter by 2035, the UK's defense minister 
has warned of disastrous consequences should any of the partners get cold feet and pull out after work starts. British Minister Ben Wallace made the claim ahead of a meeting next month in Japan where he will join his Italian and Japanese counterparts to discuss the way forward for a sixth-generation global combat air program, uh, also known as GCAP. An evolution of the UK Tempest program, Japan signed up with Italy and UK to kickstart the GCAP program in December. Visiting Rome on Thursday to meet Italian Defense Minister Guido Crosetta, Crosetto, sorry, the head of the Japanese summit, Wallace said politically the importance of this collaboration is we cannot let each other down. He added, all three of us will need a new fighter capability toward the end of the decade and claim there's no dropping out because we will let each other down. Potentially, we could put an end to our own capabilities in our own countries for good. So if halfway along we get cold feet and one nation pulls out, then foreign policy-wise, strategically and industrially, industrially, it could be very bad for all of us. He added, as we British say, in for a penny, in for a pound. Speaking at a conference organized by the UK Embassy to Italy during his Rome visit, Wallace was joined on stage by Crosetto, who called the GCAP program very courageous and said it was a new direction for Japan. Uh, Here's another statement. Forging a defense alliance with Japan through the program was also prudent for Italy. It will increasingly become more important to ally with countries which we share threats The principal threat may not be Russia, but China, he said. And then Wallace added that Japan has exported trains and cars, but not defense products. Hmm. Because of their constitution and their political attitude, they have not been comfortable with that. Italy and Britain have exported tornadoes and typhoons. Tornados and typhoons. We have to do that to create enough mass to afford our own capabilities. I think it's really exciting that we have Japan alongside us. The three-way team would not be a surprise to supporters of Formula One car racing, he said. The best contributors to Formula One are Japan, Italy, and Britain. In advanced engineering, none of us are strangers. So looking ahead to the meeting in Japan in March, Wallace said it was crucial to get the politicians, the generals, and industry chiefs to work together. The most important thing we most important thing as we get to the next steps is to bring them all together when every opportunity arises in the same room. The only way to cut through bureaucracy and issues is to start to emerge as if you're in the same room. And that should be almost the end of this article. Wait a minute. Crosetta said that Japan had the most urgent requirements for a new aircraft. It must have a first aircraft by 2035. I'm convinced we can meet that deadline, he said. And this article is from Tim, uh, I'm sorry, Tom Kington. He's the Italian correspondent for Defense News. And then we got another good article from, where is this from? Uh, Considering Ukraine, and it's a commentary. Let me pull that one up right now. This next article, excuse me, kind of close to home because I've been been thinking about it uh, ever since well, I guess it was France that kind of started the ball rolling with sending tanks, armored gun systems to Ukraine. And then the United States followed, and, uh, you know, a lot of countries are following. 
So this article is from 10 Feb. It's from a guy named uh, James Hessen and Bradley Bowen. Mr. Hessen is a lieutenant colonel. It's commentary from Defense News, and the title is Give Ukraine the Tanks It Needs, Not a Petting Zoo. And I'll get straight to the article, or to the commentary. The 1st Battalion, the Leopard 2 main battle tanks, could arrive in Ukraine in the first three or four months this year, German Defense Minister Boris Pistorius said Wednesday. Berlin's belated but laudable decision to send to permit the provision of Leopard tanks to Ukraine follows decision by the United States and the United Kingdom to send tanks to Ukraine also. The problem is that the West plans to send these small quantities of four different types of Western tanks, thereby placing an onerous logistical burden on Kiev. Sending Ukraine a petting zoo, in parentheses, is how he described it, a wide variety of tanks in small numbers would create a sustainment and logistical nightmare that will ultimately reduce Ukraine's combat effectiveness. Instead, Western leaders should pick the Leopard 2 as a single tank to send, transfer the maximum capabilities, maximum quantities possible, and create a U.S.-led NATO-wide effort to provide Ukraine the ammunition and training necessary to operate and maintain the Leopard 2s. So I'm going to stop right there. And I think I, I said this in one of my previous episodes was, I think the catch-and-catch-can attitude of sending stuff, I mean, it needs to slow down if possible. And obviously, every, the West has made a commitment, particularly NATO, to support Ukraine. And I think that's the purpose of this Ukraine defense group, contact group, is to stop kind of catch-as-catch-can sending stuff over and start having a purposeful decision-making on, okay, the, to lack of a better word, use what that guy, uh, Mr. Wallace, said, in for a penny and for a pound. Everybody seems to be in for a penny and a pound and start purposely thinking of, okay, let's start, we'll use the Challenger 2 as an example. Let's go all in on Challenger 2, send ammunition, training, logistics for Ukraine and, you know, stop... Uh, you know, just sending M1s, okay, that's going to take away. You know, it's not a directed effort. It's a distraction almost. So AMX-10s from France, uh, M1 Abrams, is all these are distractions from what we, sh we, the West, NATO, should be doing, and that should be a concerted effort pulling in one direction. So I I think the catch-as-catch-can stuff should, should be limited and... Uh, a purposeful direction on not just armor, but uh, line anti-tank weapons, uh, artillery, mortars, all that stuff should be kind of a concerted effort. I mean, you look at, use the United States as an example. You got the Bradley, you got the Striker. So you have two basically infantry fighting vehicles in the whole army. Uh, for for artillery, you got 155 and 105, right? 155, you have one, one version that they use for tracked, and they have one version that you use for towed. Uh, pretty simple. So I think that should be kind of replicated for Ukraine. Now I'm going to quit talking and get back to the article. Uh, back to the article here. Some, ins some might insist on moving forward with existing plans to send American and British tanks to, arguing that Ukraine needs all the armor it can get, tank as tanks are an essential element of for an effective combat arms operations. This is certainly true. But the modest additional capacity, a few dozen British and American tanks, 
will provide must be weighed against the additional logistics burdens they will also bring. Uh, so with the best intention, the West is about to put Kiev in a somewhat uh, predicament, sending multiple types of complex tanks and no low numbers. Currently, Ukraine operates Soviet-designed tanks, including many captured during the war, and then transferred or transferred over from Eastern Bloc inventories in NATO. This uh, Frankenfleet, as they calls it, is a force built out of necessity to hold off Russian forces early in the war. Unfortunately, uh, the current plan of sending all these other tanks this Frank will make this Frankenfleet even worse. Adding the limited number of British Challenger 2s, the United States Abrams, and Germany's Leopard 2s, and of course the obsolete Leopard 1s. Maintaining tanks is hard enough. Imagine establishing wartime unit, intermediate, and depot level maintenance, as well as associated complex logistical systems for four different types of newly arrived foreign main battle tanks. That's in addition to the existing fleet of tanks. Point well made. Uh, to make matters worse, the Challenger tank fires unique ammunition through a 120mm rifled main gun that is not interchangeable with the Leopards or Abrams. Additionally, the Abrams is slated for delivery under the Ukraine Security Assistance Initiative rather than under a presidential drawdown in U.S. Army stocks. That means Abrams is not going to be available for any time soon for Ukraine. And then he, the author here makes a case for the Leopard. The Leopard 2, however, is a main battle tank equipping many Western European armies with more than 3,200 produced across multiple variants. The Leopard 2's 120mm gun is common to the Abrams, allowing ammunition from the United States to supplement Allied stocks. But there is a catch. Leopard 2's are spread out across Western armies, thus requiring a multinational effort to transfer tanks to Ukraine in sufficient numbers. And then, considering all the tanks the Le that are being offered, the Leopard 2 is the best option. It can be provided in large numbers with relative speed while streamlining and minimizing logistics headaches. Indeed, leaders could strive to transfer at least 150 Leopards this spring. That would give that would be enough to equip an entire armor brigade, simplify logistics, allowing crew interchangeability, familiarity, and providing a reserve of tanks to backfill attrition. And then he says that the Ukraine Defense Contact Group is set to meet in Brussels on February 14th. Leaders should use this meeting to rally around a plan to deliver the Ukraine the Leopard 2, and only the Leopard 2, and the largest possible quantities as quickly as possible, including 150 tanks by spring. And then for, for, the, for its part, the United States should focus on rallying support from allies to send their Leopard 2s to Ukraine, producing as much ammunition as possible for the tank and providing maintenance and logistics training for the Ukrainians so they can conduct as many repairs as possible inside Ukraine. And then this, this is uh, written by uh, Air Force Lieutenant Colonel James Hessen, who was a visiting military analyst at the Foundation for Defense Democracies, and this guy Bradley Bowman, who serves as the Senior Director of the Military and Political Power. Uh, the views in this commentary do not necessarily represent the views of the United States Department of Defense or the Air Force. Anyway, well, I think it's a good argument, and I've been kind of, nah, I'm not going to take any credit, 
It's common sense. Don't give them too much stuff that they can't handle. Uh, what's next? Oh, we got two back-to-back uh, -back, uh, shoulder launch stories, which we'll get to in just a second. Let me pause right there pull them up. Okay, this first story is from uh, Tim Martin from Breaking Defense. It's about uh, the in-law, which is, I'm a big fan of the in-law. <clears throat> of the in-law. really like it a lot. So the, <clears throat> excuse me, Saab plans, of course, is made by Saab. Saab plans huge ramp up of in-law production to reach 400,000 units in a year. 400,000 units in a year. Good grief. Swedish manufacturer Saab has predicted production of the company's next generation light anti-tank weapon, in-law, will dramatically reach an annual output of 400,000 units. Used by Ukrainian soldiers to devastating effect against Russian forces, the shoulder launch munition continues to be in high demand as European nations look to replace stockpiles after gifting thousands of units to Kiev. Uh, here's a quote from Michael Johnson, Johansson from Saab. In the context of how we've doubled capacity from one year to the next at, at our Swedish in-law sites, and by 2025, we'll have double capacity again. That will be possible to generate 400,000 units from our sites per year, said Saab CEO Mike, Michael Johansson during a February 10 call. Oh, I'm sorry. During a February 10 financial results media briefing. It's a huge ramp up, obviously. The Swedish-UK program involves Saab supplying specialist kits for the weapon, with final assembly based at Fales Belfast Northern Ireland production facility. Here's another quote from Mr. Johansson. We can handle the in-law requests that we see coming, including the orders that we received last year from the UK and Sweden. We have invested now in building up some capacity to the extent <clears throat> that will be sufficient for quite some time. Uh, the United Kingdom uh, Ministry of Defense issued Saab with a new $280 million in-law contract in December of 22 to restock British Army supplies with production set to take place between 2024 and 2026. <clears throat> uh, due to, it, to its agility, reliability, and accuracy, the in-law has played an important role in Ukraine's defense capacities, making up part of the 10,000 anti-tank weapons that the United Kingdom has supplied to the Ukrainian Armed Forces Thale said at the time. Uh, delivery of 500 units to London under separate acquisition is due to occur this year. Uh, and then here's a kind of a end of the article with this. Uh, Saab and Swedish Defense Material Administration also signed off on an $86 million in-law deal in December 22 with delivery set to finish in 2026. Designed to target main battle tanks, the 28-pound munition can be used at a range up to 875 yards and features a predicted line of sight targeting capability that enables an operator to track the target within minutes, within a matter of seconds and quickly engage it. So this thing weighs 28 pounds. It's a bit heavy. I mean, it's pretty good. I mean, it, it's it's deadly. It'll take care of about anything you want to take care of, but it's 28 pounds. Um to give you an example, a uh, 7.62 machine gun is about 27.5 pounds. So it's, I mean, it's got some, it's got some heft to it. 
Moving on, so Saab reported its overall intake for 2022 amounted to six billion U.S. dollars, an increase of 45 percent from 2021. Nearly half of the annual 22 order total was recorded in the fourth quarter, with an exceptional 29.9 billion log SDK. I'm sorry, I don't have it in U.S. Uh, an increase of 144 percent over the previous year. So basically, from 21 to 22, they increased 144%. You don't need to know how much money that is. Just know it's a lot. And then they finished the article like this. Other than securing the Swedish and UK in-law contracts, Saab also benefited from a Gripen C and D fighter jet upgrade deal from Sweden in fourth quarter 22. The quarter also included Stockholm committing to fund a life extension minor, a mine countermeasure ship agreement while Poland signed on for two signals intelligence ships and Finland ordered missiles for the RBS-70 ground air base defense system. So there you go. Saab and the in-law. It's a winner. No doubt. And speaking of good shoulder launch munitions, here's the American version. American version that's good. This, of course, is the Javelin. Uh, and this is from Breaking Defense from Ashley Roquet, great great writer. We do a lot of her stories from 10 February. Uh, the Army's new G-model Javelin remains under investigation after a 22, 2022 failed launch. And I think what this story is kind of referring to, do you remember that DOT&E uh, test document that we kind of referred to, I don't know, a few episodes ago, there was all kinds of stuff in it. I guess uh, one of the chapters in there covered the uh, the javelin. So this is kind of a report on that. Uh, right to the article. So development flight testing for the Army's future G-model javelin has been paused for months following a test failure last year and will remain paused indefinitely as the service has yet to identify the cause. Uh, Lockheed Martin and Raytheon Javelin Joint Venture is under contract to develop the new missile to be formally designated the FGM-148G. That includes a new disposable launch tube assembly, electronic battery unit, and guidance electronics unit, and a missile seeker. But testing ground to a halt last year when a missile experienced a failure during contractor-led confidence flight. And that came from the Director of Operational Tests and Evaluation Annual Report, which was released last month. Uh, in response to the questions, the Army this week confirmed that the investigation is still underway to figure out what caused the anomaly and testing is not resumed. And here's a quote from uh, PEO Missiles in Space, the Program Executive Office. The Army is actively pursuing a root cause and identification in coordination with the contractor. Initial reviews identified as likely contributors to the anomaly, but further investigation is required to validate the root cause and provide a corrective action. Uh, Army spokesman did not provide additional details about the nature of the test failure, and spokespeople for the joint venture did not immediately respond to breaking defense's questions. The uh, new missile development is expected to continue over the next three years, and if the Army deems qualification testing is a success, then production will begin according to the DOT&E report. So now we're going to shift gears off that the G-model missile and start talking about the... Uh, the clue, the lightweight clue. So the Javelin G model developed as one part of the Javelin's missile system. Uh, the second line of effort involves the reusable 
lightweight command launch unit, which is called the lightweight clue, which appears to be going more smoothly than the javelin effort. And here's a little bit about it. The clue mechanically engages the launch tube assembly for, sh for shoulder firing, has day and night sights for surveillance and target acquisition, and electronically interfaces with the missile for target lock on a missile launch. And according to the DOT&E report, the lightweight clue incorporates a modern-day infrared camera technology and a small, smaller, lighter form factor and will be compatible with the G-model missile and previous iterations, too. Efforts to equip Ukrainian forces with the shoulder-launch weapon have accelerated production of the lightweight clue. Uh, the Army spokesman said. He said he also noted the service wants to make a production decision around January through March 2024 timeframe in order to begin fielding the lightweight clue in FY 2025. Although the development of the G-model missile and the lightweight clue are linked, each is not dependent upon each other since the lightweight clue can fire legacy missiles and the G-model. And the G-model can be filed from legacy launchers too. So that's pretty good. Uh, leading up to the decision point, the service plans to conduct two operational tests this year, one at its cold regions test center in Fort Greeley, Alaska, and the other at Yuma Proving Ground, <clears throat> Arizona. Uh, so far, through so far though, DOT&E, the lightweight clues better camera resolution and high zoom capability enables it to better detect, recognize, and identify threat vehicles quicker and possibly at greater distances than the old Block One clue. Feedback on the lightweight clue has been positive. Gunners prefer the improved camera resolution to the smaller and the smaller lightweight form factor. Developmental testing to date indicates that the lightweight clue is on track to meet its reliability requirement, which we talked about sometimes. The reliability, availability, maintainability called RAM. That's a kind of a test thing they look at. And uh, from what I know about the lightweight clue, I mean, it's very good. Everybody loves it. So, I mean, that javelin is just only going to get better and better. And I took this, I got a little bit of time left, 34 minutes. I'll try not to talk too much here about it, but uh, I went to CSIS, which is a good site that we like. And there's a little bit about the, about the javelin, in case you didn't know or in case you forgot. So, start with the uh, the current models the FGM 148 the F model the F model provide is features a multi-purpose warhead to improve improved performance to provide improved performance against soft targets like personnel buildings light armored vehicles uh, the United States has finalized a contract for 2100 F model missiles in 2019 this is kind of an older article and the first production F F model Missile was completed in 2020, May of 2020. So the F model hasn't been around that long, only a couple years. And here's the G model. The G model features an improved missile seeker that does not require cooling. This lowers missile deployment to launch times. This lowers missile deployment to launch times and provides operators with more potential shots against targets of opportunity. The G model features a new launch tube assembly and a battery unit. And then here's the lightweight clue. The lightweight clue is an enhanced version of the clue that, that according to the system's lead contractor, weighs 30% less than its predecessor and offers twice the sight range at night and three times the sight range during the day. That's interesting. The lightweight clue will allow Javelin users to extend the, the missile's effective range to 4.5K. 
That's good. Uh, so it's the inter we just talked about inner production. A little bit about the javelin. So the javelin weighs one is 1.2 meters in length. Uh, weighs 22.1 k. Each missile weighs 8.4 k. Tan is oh, I'm sorry. The missile carries a 8.4 k. Tan with charge, high explosive anti-tank warhead. Uh, it has a maximum range of 2,500, but most people know that it can go out to 4K, and with that new clue, it can go to 4.5K. It flies at 140 meters per second, reaches a max altitude to 150 meters, and 50 meters while in top attack and direct attack modes, respectively. So top attack is 150 meters, and direct attack is 50 meters altitude. Uh, while the Javelin penetration capabilities are classified, U.S. military training documents note that Javelin penetrates all known armor, as well as 30 inches of rolled homogenous steel. Talks about the clue, the, the current clue. Uh, clue weighs 6.4 pounds and uses pass passive infrared guidance to fix and track targets. The day side is equipped with four power magnification. The infrared night side is four and nine power magnification. Uh, it can be used as a standalone surveillance and target acquisition tool to supplement the LRAS or the ITAS. That's what the old cavalry people use. A uh, little bit more about the Javelin. It's designed to be shoulder-fired, but maybe alternately mounted on wheeled or tracked vehicles. You know, they put one on a striker. Uh, its reload and reacquire time takes about a minute. It requires only 72 hours of classroom training to be become a qualified operator. Um, this is a lot better than the old Dragon, M47 Dragon. Anybody remember the Dragon out there? That took 10 days of training. Uh, the missile is fire and forget using infrared guidance, which means the operator can fire and quickly move to cover or relocate to another firing position or reload to fire again. This is unlike the wire-guided predecessor, the M47 Dragon, which required operators to track the target until the missile's impact. Almost done here. Uh, javelin operators include the United States, Australia, Bahrain, Czech Republic, Estonia, France, Georgia, Indonesia, Ireland, Jordan, Lithuania, New Zealand, Norway, Oman, Poland, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, Taiwan, excuse me, Ukraine, United Arab Emirates, and United Kingdom. Holy cow. Uh, the Javelin is expected to remain in operation with the United States military at least, 20, at least until 2050. The commonly cited estimate for a javelin cost is 80000 per unit, but according to the PB-22 Army budget submission, the Army purchased 32,142 rounds for an average cost of $107,500. The new lightweight clue is estimated to be $514,000, but the Army expects to lower the lightweight clue unit costs in future years. One thing about the Javelin, they're very expensive, and it's kind of hard to, uh, I think the Army relies on a lot of simulations to keep the Javelin gunners, uh, I don't know if the word is current, or qualified, but trained. How about that, trained? It's a very expensive weapon. What did it say, 104,000 per? 107, 107.5. All right, that's it. We're at 39 minutes. A little bit long. I wanted to try to stick to 30. I didn't make it. But uh, anyway, hopefully shed some light on the balloon stuff. Uh, Japan, uh, Japan, UK, and Italy's uh, next generation or next fighter. Uh, 
uh, Ukraine and the tanks, Saab and the in-law and Javelin uh, and the clue. That's it. 39 minutes, 51 seconds. Last few episodes, but we're doing pretty good. Pretty good downloads. So everybody that listens, um, very flattered. Thank you very much for listening. Try to improve every episode if possible. And try to pick the best stories. Um, Anyway, thanks very much for listening. I think this is episode 95 of the books. And good night.